Transform the way you hunt with the all-new base cellular trail camera connected by the Moultrie Mobile app. Moultrie Mobile's industry-best app gives you complete control over your camera settings, up-to-the-minute updates from the field, and other interactive scouting tools on your smartphone or computer. Features like weather forecast, advanced species recognition, interactive maps, and a whole lot more. For more information and to make your purchase, visit www.moultriemobile.com. Fully Loaded Chew is tobacco-free, long-cut, and pouches that gives you the same pack, dip, spit, and buzz that you're used to without tobacco. Fully Loaded Chew comes in nine flavors and is made with all food-grade ingredients and tobacco-free nicotine. To give us a try, head on over to FullyLoadedChew.com for a $1 can of chew with free shipping when you enter the code OUTDOOR1, O-U-T-D-O-O-R, and the number one. For more information on our product line, visit FullyLoadedChew.com. Welcome to Maximize Your Hunt, the podcast dedicated to those who want the most out of their hunting property. This podcast explores land management, habitat improvement, and hunting strategies that will help you maximize your time in the field. Follow along as industry professionals that live and breathe white-tailed deer share their secrets to success and now the founder of whitetail landscapes your host john teeter i'm john teeter whitetail landscapes this is maximize your hunt a little housekeeping if anybody who's listening to this can go in and give a five-star review comment i'd really appreciate that that helps boost us in the in the uh, ether and hopefully everybody is uh, enjoying their summer i've been busy traveling to clients uh, on a weekly basis Uh, that's pretty much the norm for me and uh, looking forward to hunting season and it's not too far away and i'm doing some prep on my land i've been working (laughs) working in the evenings getting some things set up and that's the only time really have for myself so uh, i'm sure a lot of people are in the same boat i'm happy todd chippy's back empire land management Uh, todd's just a wealth of knowledge great all-around guy out of wisconsin and uh, really happy to just have him on this podcast. And uh, we really don't have an agenda today, which is which is which is good. I know he's got some things he wants to talk about, but we're just going to kind of shoot it and and have fun with the conversation. Todd, are you on? Yeah, I'm on. Good. How are you doing? Good, man. I'm uh, living good. life. What's up? Yeah, sounds like you've been busy like all of us right now, trying to fit 26 hours on a 24 hour day. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. But it's good. Life is good. It's better. It beats the alternative. So. Yeah, I've been working on some client property that historically I've been always working whitetail aspect. And now some of their children are getting to the age where they want to experiment more shotguns. They want to dove and duck hunt and pheasant hunt. So I'm doing habitat restoration for our pheasants and we're doing some duck and dove plots, putting in millet and buckwheat down where it's low. So it's been, it keeps it fun and it keeps it interesting. But as I'm doing that, I have to use a lot of chemicals and, I noticed on YouTube, there's some bad advice going on sometimes where people, and I, I think this is going to help people, um, or I see you spray over switchgrass with cymazine, and they're talking about, I got a 20-gallon sprayer, so I can do four acres at five gallons an acre. Same with glyphosate. They're spraying both together with these small tanks. And if you read the label on cymazine or on Roundup, the key to get that to work And the key to get those chemicals, the maximum effect out of the chemicals and not get Roundup resistant weeds or even uh, like your uh, water hemp and some of those things is uh, like for Roundup, it it requires like 44 gallons per minute of water with 
I'm sorry, 44 gallons per acre of water with the two quarts per acre of Roundup, as well as a cymazine, it takes 20 gallons of water to make it effective. So it's, uh, that's a lot of water. So when you see the farmer spraying and they get perfect crop, crop coverage and they get perfect um, no weed from their pre-emergence, no weed competition, that's exactly why it's happening. Um, you have to use enough water, not just the recommended amount of chemical. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And, and that's something I've had to play around with for years and reading labels and understanding chemical applications. Simazine, I, I have uh, I have it in bag form. And uh, I've, you know, typically, you know, it's a, it's a pre-emergent and you apply it at a certain time at a certain rate based on, like you said, the volume. And, you know, I've gotten really good success. I mean, my switchgrass stand, and, and I'm not bragging, um, I've got pretty good soils in the area that I planted it. Right now is five foot tall. And in yeah. our areas, and it's a third year, it's just going on its third year this year. Uh, I, I've got some some weed intrusion in a couple places, but generally speaking, you know, you could mow it back right now, reset some of those plants, and, and that might be good enough without even a camp, chemical ac- application the one thing, Todd, I just kind of want to talk about was I was walking around my property the other day and something that I recognized was I've got a lot of grass in around my food plots and a lot of the grass, the cool season grass are, are seeding out right now. They're producing a ton of seed and they're just distributing that seed uh, through wind or just dropping insects, whatever, whatever the case may be. And if you were, I guess, planning ahead and you were looking at your property and how to manage at least around a food plot to produce maybe more forbs you would have handled that grass competition a long time ago. Uh, you're oh, yeah. too little too late right now. And that resident. Well, you can, well, keep in mind, John, you can mow it, yeah. wait two weeks, and then you can treat it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, some of this stuff has already gone to seed in my place. So, you know, I, I just I didn't have the time, but I, I think a lot of people are dealing with that particular situation where you know they've realized that they've got to make a change. They've got to remove some of the grass component, its, its density, its volume, and they might be a little bit late and I'm in that boat. And what it, what it just does is it prolongs, it makes you have to work on it the next year and the next year and the next year. And eventually you'll lick it, but it just takes, takes time. But yeah, Todd, I agree. I mean, yeah, you should have set it back a few yeah. weeks ago. And then again, like you suggested is, is hit it with you know, some type of herbicide. Yeah. And the, you know, a common misconception is when they see like, even in my yard right now, the grass goes to seed before you mow it, those seeds aren't viable. You would have to let it go dormant. And then those seeds would be pollinated and would be viable. And people kind of panic, like, oh, I want to seed right. I'm out of luck. It's not true. And as a matter of fact, if you mow it now while you see seed heads, the plants hold the grass. It's whole. All it wants to do is grow more seeds. So it will tap into carbohydrates out of its roots and try to push more seeds up. So it's even more susceptible because it's weakened from the mowing. Um, to like a mazifer, um, you can smoke it off and it, it really works good. And then if you put, uh, you put a mazifer um, with a uh, cloth that gives you a pre-emergent, the mazifer give you a pre-emergent effect and the cloth of them will kill the grass off. So that allows the broadleaf to come in. It works really well. Something to think about. I've done some major restoration work on marshes or areas where like dogwood is smothered out by um, canary grass. And if you try to spray it with anything else, it the, you can knock the canary down, but you take a risk of killing the other stuff. But if you use uh, cleft and use them as for as a as the um, pre-emergent, 
it really, you can restore amazing amount. You just have to know the right amount to use. Otherwise, kill everything and then you just have a desert so yeah but um there's so there's all these kind of ways around or problem solving on that and that's what brings me to my next point you, well so you definitely have to use enough water with all those chemicals and i think that's where a lot of people are falling short and i posted on instagram i talked about in the uh certified application class when they talk about ep- applicators class they talk about you know triple rinse your jugs when you're done and then cut them and then there they taught us never ever recycle them cut the jugs up so that nobody inadvertently uses one for water at a later date not knowing what it is and um they said that they're really not good to recycle it. you should throw them away now i looked at the, the national standard it says you can recycle herbicide if it's triple rinse the jugs but in our class they said it was a bad idea and that kind of plastic really doesn't get recycled anyhow so that was just a little bit of a pro tip right there on i think guys could get more effective use out of their herbicides by using just a little bit more water like a significant amount of more water and additionally some of those people that are posting those type of um that type of advice are also it seems like demeaning or detractors from other people that are doing food plots. And I always like to talk about, think about my mentors as I was coming up through ranks and there's nobody better out there. Um, you can watch all their videos going back that have always shared information, have never been detractors, have always uh, just positive and, and didn't have to say I shot more bucks than anybody else and do it my way or the highway. And that's Mark Drury and Drury outdoors, Mark and Terry Drury and her daughters. I mean, they were mentors of mine from the very beginning, the first time I watched one of their videos and then getting to know them through the deer shows. And the first, as a matter of fact, this was, this is a stark aha moment for me when um, I met Mark Drury the first time at a deer fest in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. And he said, and the first thing he says is one up to him, Hey, how are you doing? And he said right away, How's your season going? And what have you been seeing lately? And what have you been doing? And I was almost speechless. Like, here's this guy that's on TV and killed all these big bucks. And he wants to know what I've been seeing. And I saw him doing it to everybody. And you know why? He was learning from everybody. And he would share information and say how he's doing what he's doing. And if you look at old videos, he was the first guy talking about switchgrass and access and egress and safety and things. And no matter what he was hit with, a drought, a flood, or other people doing stuff, always positive, always doing it. And I get a kick out of them because the information that they share in the videos is very similar to a famous trapper, uh, Dobbins. He, Paul, the way he would write, he wrote like a trapper traps. So he'd write the article and it's interesting. And then all of a sudden it'd say, since I already told you where to trap, I should tell you how. And you'd be like, what? You told me where? And you go back up and read it again. Like, holy smokes, he did say it. But in such a creative way that it wasn't just like instructions on a whiteboard. And I think that's a lot of how they've always shared information and never bragged. And that's how they did it. And now some of the YouTube, the recent YouTube stars, like you bought what? You did what? And this seed is bad and only use this seed and <laughs> this is better. But the real icons of the business here, Jim Ward, um, uh, Mark Drury, the people have always shared information um, and never badmouthed or said, you don't need a tractor or you don't need a grain drill. No, you don't need one. But if you have one, you shouldn't make somebody feel bad about it. And I know some people will contact me after a podcast and say, well, I only have this. 
I only have a bag spreader. And I'll say, only have a bag spreader. I use a bag spreader for acres every year because my tractor won't fit back on this Oak Island in the middle of a marsh that I want to plant some stuff on. And I'm back there with a leaf blower and a bag spreader. That's a very effective tool. Or just a cultipacker is a very effective tool. So I think guys like you, John, and I try, I try to do the best that I can to, to share information and never badmouth any other techniques. And uh, I think that that's really the positive route that guys need to take. And I hope that we start to see more YouTube or guys follow the people that are more positive in sharing information and, uh, and growing some big deer and, and having fun on their land. Yeah, I want to be careful here because last night I was laying in bed and uh, on my YouTube feeds, I got uh, uh, the competition between Tony LaPrette and uh, Don Higgins. And I started watching it and uh, I can't watch uh, an hour, 50 minute uh, YouTube video or listen to any of that stuff. Uh, but yeah. I, I, and I'm not going to I'm not going to bang on either one of those guys um, because it's 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 again, let's let's be positive regardless yeah. of the ego, regardless of yeah. the, the mindset. There's a lot to be gained from people, and it's listening to the details of the conversation. Um, they may go on a rant of, you know, how their seat is so great or, you know, how they approach something. Uh, we're all in our own unique situations. My situation yeah. is, isn't is special, right? I'm not, I'm not a superstar in a, lot of, in a lot of areas, but I found a process and a technique that works for me. And yeah. the, the smart guy, the guy that has the experience, knows that there's multiple ways to do things and has the experience to exploit that and gives you multiple options. It's not like you've got this decision tree and you, you've got to go this way because my way is the right way or Tony LaPrance's yeah. way is the right way. And when I watch those videos, that's exactly what I think about. I put, take right. those individuals and I place them in different environments and they could be fish out of water. And that to me is maybe you don't have the breadth of experience and I'm not trying to be negative, but you don't have the breadth of experience hunting that, diverse landscape or hunting those scenarios. I mean, I would just be enthralled to have the opportunities to harvest multiple deer. And here's one thing that I've been, I've been thinking about a lot lately. I've actually really enjoyed the fact that in all the acreage that I can hunt, I have one deer to go after and it puts the odds hundred percent against me. It feels like most of the time. And yeah. I, I like one really good thing about it. I only have one thing to focus on. I don't have a five or six or seven deer to worry about. And my odds go up, obviously. But thinking about other deer, it complicates the matter. And um, I was thinking about the little bit of the interaction those guys had is I've shot multiple bucks and blah, blah, blah. On my land. Well, that's great. That's all good and fun. And I may have one buck on thousands of acres to hunt on, and I'm going to kill him. And that achievement to me is far greater than shooting any ginormous buck. It could be a year and a half that I'm focusing on for that matter. And there's people yeah. that, in the Adirondacks that hunt here that may only have one buck that they see a year uh, or just a few does that they see a year. And that's a huge accomplishment to people. And just something that I've been recognizing lately, it's hard for me to pay attention to those guys that everyone wants to be an elitist state. Now, I shouldn't say that. A lot of people do. Um, it's not that great necessarily to feel that way because achieving the best or not experiencing things at incremental levels and and building character in that process to me the value isn't isn't there that the real anguish and stress in life you don't you don't learn anything from it and so school hard knocks to me has been really the f framework for how i've kind of approached this and i, I don't know i went, went a little bit of a monologue but yeah you made me yeah. you made me think a little bit 
Yeah, well, it makes sense. I mean, uh, Drury's have always said from the beginning, make your land better or get better land. And then they told you how to do it. And they told you where they go. So it was it was always an option for anybody. And, and uh, I think that's a good way. But you're right. There's people that have better land. And then there's the people that have the challenge. And that's when I'm looking at land managers. I'm not taking on new clients, so I'm not, I'm not looking for anybody um, to sign up. But what I judge a land manager by is any one of us that are in the business could go shoot a big buck every single year. And many of us do every single year shoot a nice deer. It's the clients. What are your clients killing? Well, are you, are you hit and miss? You get in there and the clients are killing. Or are you taking your time to show them not only – where, how, set up their property, but how to hunt their property. And um, that's where, I mean, I've had a lot of, I feel more excited when I get those pictures of the big bucks that my clients have shot than I do of shooting one myself. Because, you know, we've got you and I, we, we've got our land set up and many of the guys in our, our land set up pretty good. And we bought land in good areas because we've seen a lot of, uh, a lot of things that it's possible and we know how to go kill a nice giant buck. Um, and so then it, it gets to be how many other people can I put big bucks in front of and have them kill stuff. And that, that gets to be the challenge and the fun and the hunt of it from a land management standpoint. Todd, I, I got a, something to add to this. And, and, uh, this is something that I've been working on the past year. So, and I'm not going to go through my rule sets cause they're sensitive to me, but here's what I've learned. And it's, it's not the plans that I write. It's not the packages that they get. And it's not any of that stuff. When I come on the client's property, it's, it's, it's a paradigm shift. It's taking my vision and giving them my perspective and seeing, having them see it in the same light and, and vision that I do. It's giving them the options, giving them rule sets to work off of. Yeah. I, I just talked to a client the other day and it, it, it a bit perturbed me. Uh, but then I, I reflected and I said, okay, he's not following the rule sets precisely. He's not paying attention to the plan. He's actually brushing it his own stroke. I mean, he's doing it in his own way. And I was at first perturbed. And then I was like, man, but he's not going to have the level of success if he doesn't do what I'm doing. I don't let go of that feeling because what I realized is he has the vision and you can have the vision. I can give you rule sets and you can, bedding needs to be this far and this is the layering and this is what you plant. And these are the amount of beds in this area. I can you know tell you how to manage this timber. You can have all that kind of packed down but if you don't feel it and if you don't envision the success related to it, you're, you're not really going to get anywhere. And it's okay taking a consultant's point of view and perspective and then taking your own approach and take on it and finding, I guess, you know, how you would approach it. But thinking yeah. about those rule sets and then maybe massaging them to your benefit. And that's the one thing that I've, I've struggled with because I want it so simple, stupid when I leave that they don't need... I, I shouldn't even have to give them a drawing. They should know how to approach it because they have all these rule sets in place and they can implement. And I feel like a lot of people, uh, it's hard to follow that, but I've, again, I've made it simple, stupid. I've given them a spreadsheet. I break out the rule sets and then say, this is how you design your hunting property. Cause at the end, I want you to be able to do it, not me. And, uh, something that I've been having these moments thinking about recently that I just, Again, it's just it's, it's a giving that vision and that paradigm shift. But everyone thinks differently, and that's really the criticalness of what I was just suggesting: is taking your own approach on the things that you know, trying to get the experience, and then from the experience, learning and, and compiling all that information to, to have the best outcome. And that that's kind of well, and a lot of the guys, you know, a lot of the guys that own property are are alpha males, and they're a little bit 
um, they'll look at it. And, and sometimes it's baby steps. I, I run into the same thing, you know, and it, it's baby steps. All of a sudden, they follow one portion of it. And wow, you know, it, and that, wow, that worked. That deer came out right when you said, and all of a sudden, um, then they start to buy into the rest of it. And sometimes it takes years, but it's really, it's the journey, you know, and some people have fun learning and taking it a piece at a time. And that's ours. My people have fun with it. Don't make it so, um, so hardcore that you're not enjoying it. And sometimes something that, yeah, you or I know, and we've done it long enough. We come in in one or two years, have that land set up perfectly, but it might take them five or seven years because it's not their job. It's not their only thing. And, um, you know, they just, uh, takes a little longer and takes baby steps and, and, um, they get into it, but at least you gave them the information and that's kind of like the frustration you're experiencing there. That's kind of why my business model is a little differently where I take the customer and I just stay on the property and do everything, um, for five to seven, sometimes longer years. And I just do it all. And then they can go and hunt, you know, the places that we set up and have pretty good success with it. Um, little different clientele here than you have there, but um, it's been pretty successful. And that's why, you know, another guy, you mentioned a couple guys there, but Jim Ward is a guy that his business model is the same where his customers that he had 20 years ago, he still goes back to those customers to do work. And I love it because he, he sees what worked then and what works now. And he's not just like giving out the latest um, information or, or a plan. He actually does it, builds it, cuts it, then goes back and, and has been looking at over 20 years. And that's been a paradigm shift for him. Like this is what we used to think, but this is what works now. And I've seen this and we've done it and it doesn't. So he's always been a wealth of information on, on all kinds of stuff. And he really stays up on uh He's always at seminars and different things, and and uh, and then plus just the practical experience and revisiting his projects for so many years. One of the things that's been interesting to me recently is, and I've done more into this, and and I, I'm old school uh, in a lot of ways, but the science side of this has been more intriguing to me than than ever, and I'm paying more attention to things that I that I. I guess I observe and then seeing if there's a science piece of it that supports my perspective, but that continuous improvement, like Jim Ward, you know, over time making decisions and then rethinking and then seeing what works and doesn't work. I mean, a lot of, a lot of clients have to go through that evolution, you know, and, and again, I mean, when I, I just think about when I'm designing a, a bedding area and the terminology we use, uh, we, you know, Josh Stryker works for me and uh, he, you know, he does, he does the implementation work, but I'll, I'll go with him and work on clients properties from time to time. And uh, we build kitchens, we fill jelly donuts. We've got all these like terms yeah, yeah. that we use with the clients and they're like, okay, we're going to fill the jelly donut here, but in the next bedding area, we're not going to do that. And here's why. And it's, it's thinking so much about kind of the landscape, what the landscape allows, and then taking that experience of what it allows and then optimizing it. And sometimes that vision exchange, and we've, we may have talked about this on an earlier podcast, or I think I might've talked about with Ellinger is, you know, having that kind of that knowledge base explaining the different scenarios and allowing them to kind of attack in their own way. I've been on a lot of, yeah. a lot of clients properties and you know, they'll, they'll create bedding structure and it's too tight to other structure and they don't have as much diversity in there. 
or alternatively, you know, they're sucked into this other uh, gauntlet of everything has to be naturalized. We got to have this naturalized yeah. environment. And if you don't have that, you're, you're just, you know, at the bottom of the barrel. And then alternatively, you've got me who's like, all right, how can I do it as simple and as cheap as possible and not have so much complexity in these things? And if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Don't try to yeah, reinvent yeah. the wheel 15 times over. and Or enhance what's already there. Just enhance what's there yeah. not without changing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so that's kind of been like this mindset shift in the, all these discussions. And literally, when I first started doing this, I felt like I was stiff arming anybody that was listening to Jeff Sturges. And I only bring him up is because of his popularity. Not saying he doesn't have a lot of good information. There's a ton of good information. In fact, he's marketed the hell out of this business. And thank goodness for him for that matter. But again, the, the strategy and, and, and specifics on your property may differ from you know, maybe where he's working, or you may have a specific vegetation that needs, you know, amended slightly different. And you can't listen to necessarily his recommendations because they may not be applicable. Not saying it's good information, good or bad information. It's just information. So it's application and knowing your environment and keeping it simple, stupid. I mean, if you, if you make it so complex where you're planting 1500 trees in, in a woodlot that you just clear cut, it seems like a lot of work for not a lot of return. Um, I'm doing stuff on my property to give it an aesthetic a f- aesthetic feel uh, because I want to have aesthetic feel on my property for my own personal reasons. And that's different than having real nuts and bolts. Like if you implement this, this functions in this way and this is the net benefit. I mean, so, you know, know what you're, I guess, inundated with and apple trees are not on the top of my list. I mean, there's a lot of things. Water holes are not on the top of my list in my areas because of the volume of water. But again, there's there's things in these specific areas that are meaningful. And a lot of times it's just running a chainsaw and no one plants to kill. And uh, as Josh said, yeah. we kick dirt, cut trees and uh, yeah. we, we keep it simple, you know, so. Yeah, and educating the client, I mean, Sometimes some of the hinge cutting that needs to be done, it takes a little while for the the landowner to get used to looking at that. It doesn't always look pretty initially. Very effective for deer for creating bedding that they don't have or or putting some stuff in the deer's face. But it takes a little bit for them to get used to looking at their woods laying down. And uh, yeah, so it's fun. And that was my main thing I wanted to talk about today is you know, if you're getting down or you're getting stressed out, watch them, watch some Drury Outdoors tapes. And he shares all the information. They tell you everything all the way back, all the way through the ages. He keeps it positive and fun and you won't have, uh, you won't have any bad thoughts or, or any accusations or, and the guy's about as humble as you can get for an amount of deer that he kills. And he never mentions it at all. Um, he's just happy when he gets the next one. So yeah, I that think, was kind of what I wanted to talk about. No, I think it's good. And I, and I, and I only threw names out today just because I think a lot of people are tied into what's on YouTube. And I think there's a lot of positive to that. And I think there's a lot of value in that, you know, Perry Batten's on this and he's works for the jury team. He works, you know, directly with Mark. Uh, he's Mark's land manager, right? He's on this podcast and you know, they're listening to this, right? They're listening to our feedback. There's a lot of people in the industry are listening to this podcast and I feel like the one thing that advantages, you know, this, this group of people that are part of this is we're just wanting to share. And, and I think don't get really rigid in your approach, take as much information that you can get and start to break it down and and apply in small increments. And to see, you know, these indices, these increments that you get, that's how you build upon success. Like even in my process, it's from the boots to the, 
what you're eating to, you know, the, how you manage your, your interior of your car all the way to cutting trees and what species to cut and what to kill and what to plant and why to plant it here. I mean, you can get a lot of different bits into this and these facets kind of build upon something that will lead you down the path. It's trying to put those all together. And that's where people really, really struggle. And I think that's why they struggle with YouTube because it's like, I'm just inundated, you know, and I kind of feel for people that are in that boat. And that's why you hire somebody to make it simple, stupid, to give you a path of success. And, you know, I'm, I'm not advocating for hiring me at all. In fact, just listen to this podcast and I'm ready to hire you right now. Oh, geez. Just right. with the things you've told me on this one, I'm ready to hire you to come up <laughs> and look at my land, cut yeah. my trees down and put in some water, take out my water holes. <laughs> Todd, I want to just go left on this real quick. And we've been talking about other things. I want to talk a little bit about water holes and, you know, their importance on the landscape. I, I've, I've kind of, I don't, I want to say this down them a little bit, but in your situation, uh, you're a dealer for earth blind uh, water holes and you use them across the landscape. Why and when do you use them in, in your situation and, and what benefits have you found? Well, I'm really glad you brought that up because I use them on almost every property, even, and I'll give you an example on my own property. Uh, the back half of it is a swamp and I have two um, ponds that I had dug specifically to funnel deer. They're going to either walk between the ponds or around the ponds. So duh, there's your funnels. In between those two ponds, I set up a water hole with a mock licking in a, a branch and a mock scrape. And every deer comes out and goes right to that because it becomes like a wet bar. So people will say there's so much deer scent around it. It's safe. There's clover around it. They all come up like who's been here lately. It's like the, the neighborhood bar, even though there's two ponds right next to it. And here's a, the example that I try to use on why you want to use water holes, even in area that have water. If a deer gets out of bed and has to walk away from your food plot to go get water and then come back out to your food plot, you just miss the daylight activity. Where it's like, John, if you're selling hot dogs on one corner and Tess is selling uh, root beer down on the other corner and I got beer or I got root beer and hot dogs in the middle, where's ever going to be? So if you can add water to your food plot, even though there's water around, it, your deer flow is on point then. You want your deer flow to be bedding food water or bedding food and water together, not bedding somewhere else for water and then out to food. So you can go, I can go in where there's water all over the place and put in a pond and people will put their camera on it and they'll be dumbfounded at the activity around that water hole because I changed their deer flow. The deer are now going where everything is at once. All three legs of the stool, food, water, shelter, right? Yeah. They come out of the shelter, they go out to the food and water. So frequently I get to places that are swamps, water everywhere. And I go, yeah, we don't need one. We got water all over here. Okay. But is your water in the right place? Yes or no. If it's not in the right place, let's just put water in the right place. Let's make it convenient. And what do you think happens? It doesn't take a rocket scientist to know what's going to happen. So, yeah, no, that's, um, that's a good point. That's, that's my point on water holes. Um, I have yet to see what, well, there's one, one in a uh, client of mine in Northern Missouri put in a water hole and the deer were absolutely afraid of it. I, and he has, he laughs. He's got a, a show we can't figure out. He's ready to fill the thing with Kool-Aid just to get it to hopefully get them to drink it. But um, for some reason, whatever it was that they're afraid, but otherwise every other one I punch in that night, there's tracks all over it because they're used to, you know, they, they smell the fresh dirt. 
seed around it. Then they come up, they usually bump the grapevine, take slurp a little water. It smells like deer. The next deer wants to find out what's going on. It's, it's hot. And if you don't have water, well, I don't have to tell you or anybody else that the water hole can be more of a draw than any food that you could possibly plant. If you can put water in, um, in a, in a area where there is no water, that's a bigger draw than anything. So in your food or your transition areas where I like to put them, uh, punch in, buy a mock scrape and you put a water hole in there and it's an absolute killer setup. Yeah. The transition areas to me would be, I guess, more, most applicable into my design philosophy and my mentality, even my own Mm -hmm. property, you know, I, again, I dished on water holes in the past. I, I have a water hole uh, in a transition area uh, leading up to a food yeah. plot, right? And and uh, it's for inventory purposes. Also, you know, I've got an adjacent neighbor that has a pretty good water source, and there's a lot of plant life around that, and that is totally detracting. And that movement towards that I had to mitigate with adding a, a comparable, uh, you know, uh, facet to my, my overall design. So it's thinking about competition as well. And and obviously yeah. that, that may make you do it a little differently. So I, I think I want to save more waterhole talk and implementation because I think you have a lot to add in here. I know you've, you've done a lot on that, but I think just hitting the topic now, because I think a lot of people are thinking summertime and waterholes. I see a lot of utilization in the fall, but uh, that's usually plant-based. But of course, I think it's utilization throughout the year is good. And you said the social aspect of it is just as important as obviously the, uh, the health benefit. So um, yeah, and the thing I find better than, I'll just throw this in, the thing that's only better than than a water hole is two water holes. So I'll put one in transition, I'll throw one out in the food. So the does come through first, take a little slurp, they head out to the food, then they're screwing around out by that water hole and, and the leggy thing. And what does that do? It opens it up for that buck to come out of his bedding. They cleared it for him, they're not by it. And uh, he comes out to drink down the smell and stuff they've been up to, and it gives you that daylight buck activity. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's all kinds of, we could do a whole show on, on using water as a, as a tactic. So, um, and for young hunters they are really good. Like that would be an example why you would put one in a food plot. It distract, it's a diversion for the deer so that they can draw their bow. They can move around on a stand to get in position for the shot because there's something there just besides being on red alert or eating that they go over, sniff the water, take a drink, maybe screw around with the thing. It gives a young hunter an opportunity. So... Yeah, good example. Shot in a relaxed deer. So yeah. there you have it. Yeah, it's a good. This is good. I, all right, we went on a bunch of twists and turns here, so I think uh, I think we're good. I don't have anything else to add. Uh, anything else from you? Nope, I think we're good. Okay. I'll try to learn some more stuff and see what I can make up for <laughs> next time. All right, that sounds good, man. Hey, thanks for catching up. It's been a while for you and me, so I'm I'm happy we can kind of just you know shoot it a little bit and just uh, catch up. So thanks. Yes. Okay. Take right. care, John. All right, man. Talk to you okay. soon. See you, we'll see you. Bye. Bye. Maximize Your Hunt is a production of Whitetail Landscapes. For more information on how John Teeter and his team of experts can help you maximize your hunt, check out whitetaillandscapes.com.